Well, we're in Deuteronomy, as I mentioned, and we uh, talked before about how uh, Deuteronomy is, is, a, is very pastoral. It gets to the heart of the law. The year is 1400, around 1400 BC, and Moses and the Israelites are encamped on the plains of Moab. They're getting ready to go into the land that God has promised them. But before they do, in Deuteronomy, Moses gives a series of three sermons, three messages to help prepare the people for what lies ahead. And the main purpose of these sermons is to help them understand God's law. It says that he's, in Deuteronomy 1.5, it says that Moses expounded the law. He explains what the law is all about. Deuteronomy is really at the heart of the Pentateuch. To understand all the laws and the stories that have taken place so far, you really have to understand what Moses is teaching us in Deuteronomy. And the heart of Deuteronomy is in Deuteronomy 6. We're going to look at that, Lord willing, next week, where Moses tells the people that you know, the Lord our God, the Lord is, is one. And you shall love the Lord, Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's the, the center of Deuteronomy, the center of the law. It remains the, the center of the faith. Love God. Be devoted wholly to the one true God. And we come to Deuteronomy 4 after Moses has spent the first few chapters kind of saying, here, remember, here's what happened, and then we come to Deuteronomy 4, and he says, now here's, here's what all this means. At the beginning of Deuteronomy 4 that we looked at four weeks ago, he says, okay, here's, here's what's going to happen in the future if you obey God's law, and here's who God is. And then we come to Deuteronomy 4, verse 15, and Moses gives them some warnings. He says, watch out for something. And if you would, if you are able to, if you'd stand with me in honor of God, as we read his word together this morning, Deuteronomy 4, beginning in verse 15. He says, therefore, therefore, he's just said because God isn't a material thing, he didn't He's a spirit. He says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, for I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God with which, uh, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire." A jealous God. 
When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in the land, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart, with all your soul. And when you're in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord, for Yahweh your God, is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word. Father, please, we ask, your grace upon our time together as we look at, at this text. Help us to be changed. Help us to love you more. And help us to be more obedient and experience your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few weeks ago at the men's breakfast, Brock Gerber was teaching, and he was talking about grieving over sin and just did a, a great job uh, talking about I didn't say that first service because he was here, and I didn't want to encourage him too much, but uh, he really did do it. I don't think he's in here, but I, he did a great job teaching about grieving over sin. And uh, my, my son and I were there, and we kind of left the men's breakfast, and we were kind of talking about grieving over sin. And you know, I think that what's true for me may be true for you as well. There's a danger that I face in my spiritual life, and that, that danger is to kind of reach some sort of level of sin that that I'm comfortable with, and maybe you do this as well. There's some sort of, like, if you sin a whole bunch, maybe you're, you're convicted by that, but if you, you sin this amount, you kind of, well, I'm kind of, I'm kind of used to that. I've grown accustomed to that level of, of greed or that level of materialism or that level of irritability or that level of selfishness. There's, there's some level of, and we just kind of get accustomed to that. And God in his grace provides messages like Brock's a few weeks ago to to remind us, hey, we need to, to grieve over sin. This, this needs to bother me. It needs to trouble me that I don't live in holiness as I ought to live. And the presence of sin in my life is not something to be ignored or just to kind of get used to. But when I see that, this, that I'm doing things that, that don't please God, that, that that bothers me. Now, what do I do? What do I realize when I see sin in my life? What does sin in my life mean? It means that I don't love God as I ought to love him. The more sin that I have, the the less that I love God. The more that I love God, the less sin that I'm going to see in my life. And so the presence of sin in my life reveals to me I don't love God the way that I should love him and then the obvious question, when I see sin in my life, so okay, I'm convicted by this sin, I see this sin that I don't want to be in my life, I see that it's there, and I say, okay, well, I must not love God as I should love him. What do I do then? How, how do I love God more? And the answer that we see in Scripture is to know him better. 
The more that I know God, the more that I love him. In fact, let me show you a little bit of a, a chart here, a little graphic that I think represents what this, this text is telling us and kind of the main idea that I want us to think about this morning. The first thing that we see in this text that we're going to be looking at in Deuteronomy 4, and we see this elsewhere in Scripture as well, it's crucial a truth that we encounter in Deuteronomy, I must know God to love him. I must know God to love him. In other words, I, I, can't, I can't love God if I don't know who he is. I must know God to love him. And then the next thing that we see in this passage and elsewhere is I, I must love God to obey him. If I want to walk in obedience to God, foundational to that is, is, is loving him. I can't obey God if I don't love him. Whatever I do that's not born out of love in a relationship with God, it's not true heartfelt obedience. And then the last thing that we see is that I must obey God to experience his blessing. If I want to experience the blessing both now and in eternity that God promises to his people, I can't do that apart from obedience. I can't walk in disobedience to God and say, I'm expecting God's blessing. That's, That's foolishness. We could also reverse this, right? I can't experience God's blessing apart from obedience. I can't obey God apart from love. I can't love God apart from what? From knowledge. So really, what's foundational to this whole process? How does this whole thing by God's grace begin? It begins with knowledge of who God is. If I want to be a person who experiences God's blessing both now and in eternity, in my life now, in the midst of of hard times, if I want to experience God's blessing, what does it begin with? It it begins with with knowledge, with an understanding of of who God is. There's another word that you could use to describe knowledge of God. It's it's the word theology. And and that word theology is a, a word that a lot of people just kind of kind of recoil from, but, it, but, it's, but it's a word that I believe that we're very passionate about here at, at Bethany Community Church. We, we believe that our, our, our preaching and our teaching, our discipleship needs to be grounded in good theology, a good awareness of, of who God is, right understanding of who he is. In fact, um, sometimes, uh, sometimes people that are you people are very gracious. This is a very gracious church, and so very often people will, will tell me, Daniel, thank you for preparing uh, the sermon, or thank you for, for working on that, and, and uh, you, you're welcome, of course. I appreciate the, the thanks, but really, I, um, and, and I don't want to say this in a way that um, makes you arrogant, but, um, but really, I, ho- I hope you realize what an unusual church you are, because I could not be employed many places. Um, I don't just mean because I'm not very... Not a very good worker, but I mean, not a lot of churches would say, yeah, we want a guy to talk to us for 45 minutes about the Pentateuch. I mean, that's not something that a lot of churches are just begging for. And so the fact that you're here and that you have a desire to know who God is, that is, you know, that's, that's an encouraging thing, I hope, for, for you as it is for me. Because why? Theology is important. Knowledge of who God is is important. And oftentimes we understand, misunderstand what theology is. <clears throat> Excuse me. In fact, um, I was reading a book uh, by Kevin Van Hooser called Is There a Meaning in the Text? And he was talking about two parables by Kierkegaard that, that I think kind of illustrate the problem that we have sometime with theology. One parable is called the, the Parable of the Love Letter. 
And in this parable, there's a, a man, and he has a, a letter from his beloved. But it's written in a foreign language, and so he has the letter in one hand and a dictionary in the other hand, and he's translating word by word, trying to figure out what his beloved has written to him. And his friend walks by, and he sees what he's doing. He says, oh, I see you're reading a letter from your beloved. And, he's, and the person responds, he says, reading? Uh, I'm toiling over this thing, and if you call this reading, you mock me. And sometimes when we come to theology, we think of it as this, this dry business of translation and getting into the minutiae as opposed to just looking at a love letter and reading it. The other parable that I think is, is helpful for us, there's a parable called uh, the King's Decree. And the King's Decree, there's a king, and this king writes a, a royal decree, and he gives it to all the people in his country, and, and every person in the country hears of the royal decree, they read it, and they all interpret it differently as they, as they desire to interpret it. And in fact, not only do they all interpret it differently after they read it, they all interpret it differently each day. So each day there's, there's new interpretations of what the king wants them to do. And so the, the result is this, everybody, everybody's reading the decree, but nobody is obeying what the king has told them to do. And that also represents how we approach theology sometimes. We've got this book, and we believe that it's from a king, and yet we kind of read it, and every person just kind of does what they want to do and how they want to interpret it. But brothers and sisters, God's word to us is both a love letter and a decree. And he has revealed himself in it so that you and I could know who he is. We could come to this word and we could say, okay, not just what are the rules that God has for me. I have to do this and I can't do this and I need to do this and I shouldn't do this. But who is God and, and how can I love him? And as I love him, how can I obey him? And as I obey him, how can I experience his blessing? You say, Daniel, how in the world does this relate to Deuteronomy 4? If, if this is true, if it's true that I need to know God to love him, I have to love him to obey him, I have to obey him to experience his blessing. If, if that's true, and I think that is what Deuteronomy 4 is telling us, what represents a danger to this whole process? How could this whole thing, this, this whole process of knowing, then loving, then obeying, then experiencing, how could that whole, that whole process get get thrown out of whack. Well, it could happen at the beginning as we practice something called idolatry. You see, what is idolatry? Idolatry takes place when I, I call something God that isn't God, and sometimes idolatry is, is very purposeful. We say, okay, you know what? I know that I'm supposed to place my affections upon God. I'm supposed to be devoted to him, but here's this other thing. Maybe it's, it's, um, it's pleasure, it's, it's uh, materialism, it's, relation, it's a relationship, it's a, it's a nice person, but it's, it's something that I, I give my worship to, my devotion to, Worship and devotion that I'm only supposed to be to God. And some, maybe sometimes we do that consciously. But here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. And here's the problem that the people in this chapter of Deuteronomy faced. And the Israelites faced for quite some time. The danger is this. Sometimes I can, I can fashion a God for myself that looks very much 
like the God of Scripture, and I can give my devotion to that God instead of the one true God, and I can be practicing idolatry, but I don't even realize it. I have a wrong understanding of who God is, and so I love something else. And as I love something else, I obey something else. And as I obey something else and walk in a way that's contrary to how God has called me to live, I don't experience blessing, and I go, what's the deal? What's happened? I want us to look at Deuteronomy 4, and I want us to understand the importance of knowing the one true God. Now, let me remind you what we've talked about before. Four weeks ago, or I think it was four weeks ago that we were in this passage last time, we saw this from the first part of chapter 4. We saw, number one, this, that there is life in the worship of the one true God. We saw there is life in the worship of the one true God. We begin chapter 4, and uh, if you look at chapter 4, of Deuteronomy, you see that there are just, uh, there's just this amazing picture that Moses sets before the people of what the life in the land that God is calling them to could look like if they walk in obedience. He says in verse 6, look, if you, if you take God's commandments and you keep them and do them, it will be your wisdom and your understanding of the sight of the people. When they hear of the, all these statutes, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? In other words, you're going to go into the land, says Moses, and you're going to, to have these statutes that God himself has given you. And as you love him and obey him, you're going to walk in, in the way that he's called you to walk. And everyone else is going to look at you and they're going to say, wow, there's something special about those Israelites. They don't practice the same things that we practice. They don't murder. They don't steal. They, they aren't uh, unkind to one another. They honor their parents. They aren't practicing immorality. Their family structure is intact in, in some very profound ways, and, and they're or at least pursuing that. And that's, there, there's beauty in that. They're walking in the land, and the other nations see that, and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant takes place as the nations are blessed as they come to the Israelites and say, we want to be like you. We want to have a God like your God. But he goes on to say in these first 14 verses, he says, but it's not just about rules. In other words, you can't separate the rules that God gives you from God himself. You can't just say, you know what, I'm going to stop lying without thinking about the God who tells you not to lie. And in Deuteronomy 4, beginning in this, this first part of the chapter, we see something very, very interesting. God says, hey, remember, remember when I gave you the commandments, you didn't see anything. You didn't see some image of a God. I'm spirit. And we talked four weeks ago about why that's so important for us to remember, why God wants them to know that he's spirit. God wants the Israelites to know, and he wants us to know, that he's not some created thing. God is not part of his creation. It's not like God is, sometimes we have this, this image of God that he's like a, a super force that's kind of contained throughout the universe, or he's, he's kind of like, he's not tiny like us. We give him at least credit for being big, but, but he's, like, he's like super big. He's as big as the universe. And it's true that he is, there's no place that he is not in the entire universe or in the entire created realm, but we must not deceive ourselves into believing that we are worshiping a God who is somehow contained within the confines of even the expanse of the universe that is far bigger than even our brains can begin to wrap our 
are themselves around. God is completely separated from space and time. He is not part of his, he's not bound by his creation in any way whatsoever. And so whenever you look at the created realm, you're not looking at, at, at God. God is beyond the created realm. And what does that mean? It means that he has absolute and total authority over that which is created. There's life in the worship of the one true God, but it's important that the Israelites not deceive themselves and worship something as God that that isn't God. There's life in the worship of the one true God. Well, then we come to this second truth that helps us understand all that we've been talking about. Number two is, is the reverse. If there's life in the worship of the one true God, there is death in the worship of idols. There's death in the worship of idols. He begins by saying, okay, Here's what life can look like. Here's who I am. Then he's, then he's going to say, now here's what idolatry is, and this is what death looks like. Look at verse 15. Remember, I must know God to love him. I must love him to obey him. I must obey him to experience his blessing. And worshiping idols stops this process. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Next verse he's going to say, beware. He's going to say that several times. He's saying there's, there's a danger to you. You need to watch yourselves very carefully and you need to be careful not to look at the created realm around you and start creating idols. Don't, don't, look, at a, don't look at stones and say, okay, I'm going to fashion those into the likeness of a god. Don't look at the creation and say, okay, I'm going to, turn, I'm going to start worshiping these, these birds or the, these animals that creep on the ground. In fact, he says, don't even be tempted. Don't even be tempted to look up in the sky and say, wow, how majestic is the sun and the moon and the stars and the expanse of the created world. This is so amazing. And he says, don't let those things be that which fuels your worship. Even things that are as majestic as that. There's a danger, he says. There's a danger that your heart can be drawn to idolatry. In fact, what we see as we look at Deuteronomy 4 is that the road to idolatry is a very easy road to find. That the path from worshiping Yahweh God to practicing idolatry is a very short path. It's very easy to turn our hearts. You say, well, Dana, what, what's the essence of idolatry? What exactly is idolatry? Well, idolatry is placing our affections on something that isn't God and giving it the devotion that only God deserves. It's calling something God that, that isn't God. It's falsely describing who God is. As we talked about whenever we talked about the Ten Commandments uh, some time ago, we talked about why idolatry was, was so attractive why did people want to, to practice idolatry? Well, it was, it was selfish. You, know, you can control a God that you create. It was logical. You could say, okay, here are the rules for this God. But also, and, and here's, here's, here's where it starts to talk about North American Christians. Idolatry was also attractive because it was so commonplace. You come into a community and you ask them, okay, how do you go about 
engaging in farming. They say, okay, well, we do this, we do this, and we worship this God, and we do this, and we do this. I mean, idolatry was, was woven into the existence of, of a culture, into the fabric of a culture. And the danger the Israelites faced as they went into a new culture, and it's a danger they, they succumbed to, the danger that they faced is they would, they would come to this culture and, and not that they would totally abandon Yahweh God, but they would take some of the attributes of God and some of the attributes of the gods in the land that they were going into and they would kind of, kind of mesh them together. And at the end of the day, they would have this this new God that they were worshiping, but, but calling Yahweh God. It's called syncretism. You're putting together worship of the true God and, and these false gods. They're all kind of coming together. You said, well, Daniel, okay, um, how, does this, how does this affect us here in 2018 Central Illinois? I've, I've never walked outside and said, oh, a stick. Let's worship that. You know, it's never been something I've been tempted to do, you say. So how, do, how, does this, how does this commandment here, this instruction here about being careful for, about worshiping images or about being affected by images, how does, that, how does that apply to me? You and I, as sophisticated, intelligent, post-stone-worshiping people, culture, we're affected by images far more than we realize, and it affects our worship of God. Shane Hip wrote a book, uh, Shane, uh, about um, technology and how technology shapes faith. And he used to work in advertising. Let's listen to what he what he writes. He says, "My role as an advertising account planner was to serve as a kind of consumer anthropologist." That's he says the sanitized description. More accurately, my task was to hijack your imagination, brand your brain with our logo, and then feed you opinions you thought were your own. You're welcome, he writes. Much of what I did involved unearthing private, exploitable data from consumers' lives. An effective ad tries to, tries to tap viewers' most intense and emotional experiences, the trigger for all consumer impulses. My job was to save people from feeling impotent, unattractive, or powerless by offering them a car which promised to fix those problems. I was reading an article in, uh, from Forbes magazine recently about best advertisements of 2017, and the author of the article talked about their favorite advertisement of 2017. It was a, a Procter & Gamble advertisement. And in the, the commercial, I saw the commercial. It is, it's incredibly powerful. It's African-American moms and dads or grandparents talking to their sons, daughters, grandchildren about racism and, and bias. It's very, very powerful. But what happens is, as, as you watch that, let's say particularly if you're from a, a cultural background in which those, the, when that's your reality or how you're viewing the world, you watch that commercial and, and it stirs incredibly intense emotions, right? As you see those images on a, on a TV screen, 
It stirs those emotions, and then you see that product. And what happens? Those, those emotions that you have are directed toward that, that product, that, that inanimate object or entity. We do, we do this all the time. You know, I, I love spending time with my family. I, I watch a TV commercial, and a TV commercial, all the family is sitting around eating a pizza together, and suddenly I have associated family closeness with a special 9.99 single-topping pizza. I mean, it, it happens to all of us, right? You and I are far more susceptible to images than we realize, and we have to, God tells us, watch ourselves closely so that the images that we expose ourselves to do not affect our worship of Yahweh God. You say, Daniel, I still don't get it. How in the world can, can, can a pizza image or some sort of other image affect my worship of God? Well, maybe not necessarily pizza, but let, let me give you just a couple of examples of, of how you and I have to watch ourselves closely be, because it can, affect, it can affect our knowledge of God, it can affect who we believe God is, and then it can affect who we love, what we obey, and what kind of blessing we receive or don't receive. So, for example, we need to be careful about the images that we look at in our culture in terms of values. Our culture has all sorts of images on, in movies, on, in books that we read, on television shows that we watch. It, it, it gives us images that we look at, that we behold, that we take in either through our ears, our eyes, these, these images that, that give us certain beliefs about values. And then those values are things we import into our worship of God. For example, our culture is a very autonomous culture. We believe that we are the ultimate authority. And as we believe that we are the ultimate authority, it's very hard for us to come to God's word and say, okay, God, what would you like me to do? Or to believe that we have responsibility to other Christians to have them shape our beliefs about how we should respond to God. And so what do you hear Christians say a lot of times as, as they talk about God and their worship of God? You hear them say things like, well, you know what? Here's what God is saying to me. Now, why in the world would a person say, here's what God is saying to me? Does, it's not a way that Scripture speaks. Or a person might say something like, you know, I just feel like God wants me to, to such and such. Now, what's, what's informing that? It's usually not a, 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 a scriptural understanding of who God is. Oftentimes a person says, you know, I just feel like God is calling me to do such and such. They're, they're saying that because they're part of a culture that believes in the autonomy of the individual, and this is what the individual wants to do. And so they're, they're using biblical language or, or theological language to describe what they're going to do. But really, that's images affecting what they believe, affecting what they believe about God, affecting how they respond to him. We have to watch ourselves. We have to watch ourselves closely, right? We have to watch ourselves closely, not just in the images from our culture at large that affect our understanding of God, but, but specifically kind of the, the pop culture Jesus that our, our culture puts in, in front of us. I was uh, listening to someone recently, he said, uh, he was a comedian, he said, he said, uh, you know, Jesus was a, a Jewish socialist, and the only people who wouldn't like Jesus if they met him today are Christians. Right? Now, there's certainly some truth that we don't always understand all of who Jesus is, and certainly even as, as Christians we can misconstrue. Anyway, the, the, the point is this. What, what did this person do? This person had a pop culture understanding of who Jesus was, and there's no recognition of his holiness, of his desire to turn people from sin, 
The reality that he gave himself to deliver us from sin, that he took upon himself a punishment of, of, of eternal judgment that we deserve, all that's missing. Pop culture Jesus just wants everybody to get the same amount of everything and love each other, right? It's idolatry. And brothers and sisters, I'll just tell you this too. You and I have to be very careful about the images that we take into ourselves from, from the church culture around us, from the evangelical church culture around us. There are, are songs that we sing. There are Christian movies that we watch. There are Christian bumper stickers, all sorts of images that are just coming to us all the time about here's what Jesus is, here's what Jesus looks like, here's what he looks like in this, in this representation. And we are taking in images all the time. And, and what does God say? Hey, watch yourselves closely because oftentimes the images of me that are coming to you are not images that are, that are in line with what I reveal about myself and my word. Suddenly, based upon the images of Jesus we see in the church, we see a Jesus who isn't all that concerned about me keeping my covenant faithfulness, my, 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 uh, my covenant of faithfulness with my spouse. Or I see a Jesus who isn't all that concerned that I, that I be a generous person with the resources that I have. I encounter, I've fashioned some Jesus that's okay with me pursuing him and materialism. What is it? It's, it's idolatry. And, and what happens? There's death in the worship of idols. What will happen if I have this false God, this syncretistic God, this, this false image of who God is that I've allowed myself just to passively accept? What's going to happen? I'm not going to know God, the true God. I'm not going to love the true God. I'm going to live my life in such a way that I'm obedient to my idol, but I'm not obedient to Yahweh God. And then what's going to happen? I'm, I'm not going to experience blessing. Now, let me say something that I hope doesn't sound harsh in a, a, in a ultimately hurtful way. But, but let me suggest something to you. If this morning you could tell me, hey, Daniel, I've, I've tried to walk in obedience to God, and I just have not had any joy in following after God. In fact, I, I don't want to follow after God. Um, there's just no joy. There's no life there. Let me, let me suggest what has perhaps happened is you haven't truly walked in obedience to God. Because you haven't truly loved God, and you haven't truly loved God because there's been some other, some other idol of God that you've created for yourself, and, and you've worshipped that, and as you've, as you've worshipped and loved and obeyed that God, that God that's kind of in, in step with the culture, that God that's kind of like, you know, totally okay with everything you kind of believe about God already, that's the God you've worshipped, and now you're not experiencing blessing. Let me just suggest to you that the reason you're not experiencing blessing is, is because you've been worshipping a false God. If you can come to Bethany Community Church and not be challenged in what you believe about who God is, there's something wrong. If you can come to God's word on a regular basis and read it and not be challenged in how you're living and how you're thinking and who you are and who you should be, 
there is something wrong with the way that you're reading God's word. Because God's word constantly says, here's who I am. Repent of your wrong perceptions and conceptions of who I am. Repent and believe in me and trust in me. Love me more. Obey me more deeply. Experience deeper blessing. The picture of death that he creates here is, is, is profound. The picture of of destruction. It says, you live, you live in a way that's contrary to worship. I mean, you, you create these idols. You love them. You obey them. He says, you're going to be utterly destroyed, verse 26. The Lord's going to scatter you among the peoples. This is going to, be, going to be death. And yet, even in death, we see God's grace. God, in that moment of, of trial and of persecution and of, of, of being scattered, is going to allow the Israelites to turn to him in repentance and come and love him because God is a merciful God. And as you and I find ourselves in time where we say, you know what, I've, I've, become, I've become complacent, I've become okay with this level of disobedience, what can we do? We can say, I understand that the lack of blessing that I'm receiving, the lack of joy I'm having in my life is a result of this sin, this idolatry, this lack of love. I'm turning, and what does God say he does to those who turn? He always receives them by his grace. Here's a third thing that I want us to, to think about. What does he say? He says, therefore, if it's true that there's life in the worship of the one true God and there's death in the worship of idols, what does he say? Therefore, worship God and experience the joy of life in the light of his word. As we go through the rest of the chapter and as Moses brings his, his sermon to a close, he, he presents this, this picture of beauty and the worship of Yahweh, the one true God. And he, he talks about, he, he's given a contrast between the nations and the people of Israel several times and, and he calls, calls them to think about the uniqueness of the situation in which they find themselves. Look, has any people ever heard the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? In other words, God, is, God has taken you as a nation for himself in the midst of other nations and he's, and he's brought you into the ability where you have the ability to worship him and now if you worship him you're going to experience the joy of life and the light of obedience to his word. And it's in that context, it's in that context, that context that we come to the end of his sermon. He's laid out to them the beauty of life in God's, uh, in obedience to God, loving God. He's talked to them about the dangers of not loving God. Then we come to the end of, of chapter 4, and Moses sets apart the cities of, of refuge there, beginning in verse 41. And then we see he begins to talk with them about the law in verse 44, and then he begins his second sermon. But Understand this, the second sermon that Moses gives here is in the context of calling the people to know and to love God, right? And it's in that context we read the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not just ten rules that we put in front of a courthouse and say, okay, everybody do these ten rules. Uh, the Ten Commandments aren't ten things we put up in a classroom and say, okay, now that you see these commandments, uh, now you should be really nice to each other and love God, and uh, be really nice to each other and not lie and not steal. These commandments that God gives cannot be divorced from, from who God is. 
These aren't just good rules to do and, and be nice people and moralistic. They're, they're, they're connected to knowing, loving, and worshiping God. In fact, let me read the, the Ten Commandments here as, as we close this morning in that context. Verse 6, I am the Lord, this is of, of chapter 5, as Moses begins the second sermon here in the book of Deuteronomy. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and they may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery and you shall not steal and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words, Yahweh, the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice. And he added no more, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone, and gave them to me. Brothers and sisters, we cannot have hope of experiencing God's blessing in this life or the life to come apart from, from obedience. And we can't have obedience apart from love. We can't have love apart from knowledge of God. Now, our, the, our confidence of eternal life is not based on our obedience. It's based on Jesus Christ, knowing who he is, and as we know who he is, loving him, and placing our faith and our complete confidence and trust in him and in him alone for eternal life. Jesus Christ is our one true God who allows us to enter into relationship with God through faith in him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We pray that by your grace, we would know you, we would love you through faith, we would obey you, and in our obedience, we would experience your blessing. Father, we, we pray that as we place our faith in your son Jesus, you would just be faithful to cause us to, to um, live in light of that faith, that we would um, be able to instruct ourselves in that faith and then, then to encourage those around us with that faith as well. Give us grace in the name of your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.